Where is the line between fantasy and reality? Better question, what makes us cross that line and turn one into the other? For example, I've thought about going to Italy for years. I've planned it out, looked up hotels, bought a guidebook. But, you know, I've never actually bought that ticket. This is Crime Scene. I'm Jordan Fenster, and in this episode, I'd like to look at one specific moment. That hair-thin instant when fantasy becomes murder. But first, a warning. The following episode is not suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. That being said, I'll cut to the chase. In 1979, Albert Fentress was a respected school teacher. Right up until the moment he sexually abused, murdered, and cannibalized an 18-year-old boy. Before Fentress lured Paul Masters into his house, tied him up at gunpoint, sexually abused and mutilated him, then shot him twice in the head before cooking and eating parts of his body. In the days before he did all that, Fentress actually wrote a movie script that featured torture and murder. That was before he committed the crime. He later said that he'd been so horrified by the script that he burned it. As I said, Fentress had been a middle school teacher in Poughkeepsie, New York, and not just any middle school teacher. Perhaps the best teacher in the entire school district, or if not the best, one of the best. Uh, he was extremely well respected, and it was stunning that he would be accused of anything so serious. But nevertheless, it happened. That's... Peter Maroulis. I'm an attorney. Maroulis, oddly enough, had been acquainted with Fentress before the murder. I only knew him as being a teacher of my children. Hmm. And he had done a fine job. He had an excellent reputation. Uh, he was a uh, teacher that uh, both the students and other faculty looked up to. He was extremely well-regarded. Masters had not been one of Fentress's students. Reports from the Times suggest that the 18-year-old just happened to wander into Fentress's backyard in Poughkeepsie. I've been doing criminal law for over 50 years, and it's a very, a very unusual case. After the murder, Fentress called another lawyer, a friend in nearby Westchester County. Uh, and told the attorney that something terrible had happened at his home, and that attorney had summoned the police to go to his home, and the police went to his home and then took him into custody. And then he went to the police station, and he called me, I think it was around 5.30 or 5 in the morning, and I went down to the police station to see what the problem was. Maroulis and Fentress pleaded innocent by reason of insanity, and it worked. Fentress was committed to a psychiatric hospital, though the jury's ruling was not necessarily a popular one. George Pataki, who was governor at the time, released a statement condemning the verdict. Justice can never be achieved as long as individuals like Albert Fentress can commit vicious crimes and hide behind an insanity plea to avoid the prison time they deserve. The Fentress case illustrates the glaring need to reform our state's laws 
that allow criminals not only to escape conviction and punishment, but to avoid confinement in secure facilities. But again, how did Fentress go from writing a script about torture and murder to actually torturing and murdering an innocent victim, not to mention cannibalizing the corpse? To help answer that question, I turn to someone fans of the show will remember, Vernon Gibberth. Gibberth was not only a lieutenant commander of homicide for the NYPD, he's also an educator and consultant. Sure. I have a master's degree in psychology and uh, I've published in psychological journals. I mentioned to Gebert that Fentress said he'd been obsessed with the movie Deliverance in the days before the murder. You remember Deliverance. Gebert wasn't surprised. Well, that, that does not surprise me. The, the movie could very well have been a triggering uh, episode in his life. But before he saw that movie, he had inclinations to do that. Gebert said that the script was a way for Fentress to fantasize, to bring his fantasies into the real world just a little bit. But it wasn't enough. Many times these people who fantasize about writing about something, then all of a sudden it comes, it's not enough to write about it, they want to act on it. And so that uh, writing of that could almost be uh, interpreted as some sort of a foreplay before the actual event. And when the event presents itself, like that kid coming into his backyard, he, he, he acts on it. In cases like this, that fantasy begins long before the actual murder, perhaps as early as childhood. I would like to know what they found in the crime scene, whether or not there was pornography in the crime scene that, that replicated what he did. Because this is not something you just do on the spur of the moment, okay? And just like he said, he wrote a script and he burned it because he was so horrified from it. Well, it must have been, it must have gone into detail that would have been uh, consistent with the elements in the crime scene. It's too bad he destroyed it. It would have been, it would have been a case history. Maybe Fentress held on to that fantasy. Then Deliverance, with its forced homosexual rape scene, acts as a trigger. And then Paul Masters wanders into a killer's backyard. Well, what happens over time, it's nurtured, reinforced by masturbatory activities, pornography, which fuels the, uh, the event. And so when something happens and they act out, uh, everybody's surprised. But it didn't happen overnight. That's what I'm getting at. This takes time. And, and it takes time because these persons experiment. They, uh, they may write about it. They may fantasize about it. Uh, but the thing is that it's, it's, it's all right in that fantasy component because people are allowed to fantasize it. There's no war against that. Uh, it's when you start acting out to act on these fantasies. Remember, Fentress alerted the authorities that he had committed the murder. That phone call was an act not unlike burning the script. I think what happens is psychologically, they, you know, crossing that barrier from fantasy to reality, and if you are basically a person like this individual as a teacher, you'd have to be outraged by what you just did. And there is, a, there is an element of like, I, I want to undo this, but you can't undo it because it already happened. So what do they do? They turn themselves in, they confess, they get a lawyer, then they say they're not guilty. In 1999, 20 years after the murder, a jury said Fentress 
could be released. But the next year, an appellate court ruling forced a new trial. The five-judge panel said that Fentress could appear, quote, charming, compliant, and courteous, but that it did not mean he wasn't a threat. Sometimes people need to be in a controlled environment. And whether or not they mimic uh, sanity based on their behavior in a controlled environment and they get used to the therapists and then they have the right words down and everything's fine, would you like him living on your block? Fentress has been confined in various mental facilities ever since. His last motion for release was in 2016. He was denied. There's a very thin line between fantasy and reality, let me tell you. It's so thin you can't see the difference. And when they do cross over, the result is a horrific crime. Thanks to attorney Peter Maroulis and Vernon Gebberth, who makes me think that maybe it's time to take that trip to Italy. This is Crime Scene. I'm Jordan Fenster. Before I go, I'd like to ask you to please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would really help me out. And if you can't wait a month for a new episode, sign up for the Crime Scene newsletter at lohud.us slash crime scene. Every week, I share crime scene photos, new true crime stories, police files, transcripts, in-depth discussions, and more, all delivered to your email for free once a week. L-O-H-U-D dot U-S slash crime scene. Thanks again.